there's a myth of a North American indigenous culture that would do persistence hunting, just as you've described. But the way that they would kill the animal just reflects how how they desired to bring beauty and intimacy and connection to the whole process. So it was a first time hunter. The first time a boy was to kill a deer was to persistence hunt after the animal and to kill it was to suffocate it with a handful of flowers. And the idea was that the animal's final moments of life would be with beautiful fragrances and these beautiful smells. Welcome to Where Hope Grows, a podcast curated to tell the inspiring stories of land stewards, ranchers, and farmers who are on the front lines of the regenerative revolution. Interweaved with wisdom inspired by Mother Nature, these journeys are testaments to her capacity for healing ourselves, our agricultural systems, and our planet. Hello, my mighty friends, and welcome back to another iteration of Where Hope Grows. We have an incredible episode today that is sure to fill your bucket and leave you both inspired and curious as we continue to navigate the complex and often forbidden conversations around the ethics of harvesting animals for human consumption. In today's episode, we dive into the often profound appreciation for life that comes from participating in the procurement of meat. We also talk about how we can set our intentions in a powerful way that honors the cycles of life. If you're a carnivore, an omnivore, or even a vegan, this story is critical for evolving and coming to terms with the reality that in order for you to have the gift of life, something else must die. The point is that when we consume the bodies of other creatures, we must do so with compassion, skillfulness, love, and reverence. As Wendell Berry would say, that is a sacrament. I couldn't think of a more perfect guest to have this convoluted and important conversation with other than Monsal Denton. Monsal is the founder of Sacred Hunting, author, protagonist of The Voyage Out, and YouTube show host of Blood and Spirit, telling stories of the hunt and harmony with nature. His indigenous name, Little Beaver, comes from a crow sun dance chief. His spiritual lineage is derived from nine years of mentorship from a Muscogee Creek medicine man named Will Starhart. And without further ado, let's dive into the spiritual nature of hunting. Monsal Denton, I think about um, like what comes to mind get the creative juices flowing. I think about uh, a man who is a talented hunter. I think of a teacher. I think of uh, like a modern philosopher, uh, an author, like this beautiful gift, um, a guide in multiple senses. And we're going to talk a lot about this stuff. And then I also, I can't help myself but think of a man who's just Maybe borderline obsessed with cats. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so good. What? Uh, how many cats is too many, or is that not a thing? Well, there's definitely too many cats to be in my care, <laughs> especially until I have a long-term relationship. But there's never too many cats to look at and appreciate and connect with spiritually. I mean, cats are the ultimate land predator. And there's something about their 
there's something about their solitary nature, but there's also just something about the way that I've been able to observe and learn from the two that I've cared for that have kind of transitioned to uh, an obsession. And you'll find out I'm and just an obsessive person. Okay. Cats are just one of the obsessions. <laughs> Fair enough. I think you answered that well. I think uh, that was going to be like the question where people who are listening to this is like, is this guy legit or is he a crazy cat man? Yes. Uh, well, a bit of both. <laughs> I'm a legitimately value. crazy crap man. Yeah. You're walking that fine line. Yeah. Um, okay. You know, diving into a controversial topic like cats, I'm not a cat man. My wife is. But I want to talk in, uh, let's just like head on address this whole idea of, can you be spiritual while eating meat? Mm. Yes. And, you know, as, as many people we respect have, have talked about, it is so much more about the how than what we do. And of course, I look back at any of these types of ethical questions through an indigenous lens. You know, we all have a lens that we see things through. And from the indigenous perspective, it is so much more about the intention where things are coming from in us. And so I think that there's plenty of people who eat meat who are absolutely not spiritually connected to that process. And in fact, I would argue that's probably the majority. But there's also people who... Uh, you know, and I don't want to get in a position of pointing fingers or anything like that. Most of my family is vegetarian, but people who are vegetarian, vegan, who have a belief that they're doing something that is spiritual, uh, but it's actually quite disconnected from the process of creating food. And ultimately, this question, I think, comes down to a core story of do you believe it's possible to be in this world without having an impact on the world around you? And personally, my answer is I don't believe that that's possible. And therefore, with that conundrum, what do I, what do I seek? How do I seek connection to the process as best as I can? And of course, that can mean the berries that I eat. I mean, it's a spiritual, it's more spiritual for me to go out on land, harvest these berries, know where they came from, know how, uh, where they were grown. Uh, and the same is obviously true about an animal like a deer or a black bear or an elk, which is so much easier to uh, associate with our form of sentience as a mammal. So, you know, Yes, I do think it's very possible to to be to to be spiritual, and in fact, I think at least what I have found is that it is the one of the most spiritual things that we can do. You know, there's one of my favorite quotes is a, a guy Weston Labar, and he says, "Our first religion was to kill God and eat Him," and that directly addresses the connection, the spiritual connection to hunting in our species past. Yeah. I think when you talk about all food being spiritual or having the opportunity to be a, a vessel for a spiritual experience, you know, I, I hunt, I raise meat, and then I also have a garden. And sometimes I find myself, it's really easy to go out into the garden 
and to pull some leaves off of a, a charred plant that I'm going to cook for dinner or some basil or a tomato. And I just kind of do that very mechanically. It's like I have a relationship with that plant where I feed it, it feeds me. It's transactional in a way. It's it's hard to slow down in recognizing that that plant is actually gifting you with something greater. And so when I hunt meat, it's it's impossible to miss that step, that component where you actually harvest an animal, you transition it into death. You you see the sacrifice, you see the sentience that we were that you spoke of being relatable to. And so, yeah, I think in that connection, it's like all food is spiritual, but you have to be really mindful and thoughtful. It's it's hard. It's easy to skip the spiritual experience when eating plants, but when you eat meat and you participate in that, it's right in your face. You you can't miss that. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know that it's, you know, this is where we have to find a balance as, as individuals. I don't know that it's all that valuable to be walking around and experiencing the spirituality of everything at all times, right? There would just be such an overwhelming gratitude for everything. I wouldn't, I wouldn't really get much done in the day, uh, you know, and, uh, and so there's, yeah, there is just a kind of finding a balance. So I don't necessarily shame myself when I am, you know, taking something for granted, even, you know, at home, every single meal I eat in my home, I have killed. And I would be lying if I said that I'm not somewhat distracted at times when I'm eating. So it's a practice to, to maintain that, that kind of connection. And it's a beautiful one. So can you guide me through this idea where it's very apparent that you have reverence, respect, even love for wildlife? Um, I assume you have love for a wild animal that you're going to harvest, but I think that freaks a lot of people out and they'll challenge that and say, well, like, how can you proclaim to love something while simultaneously taking its life? That doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. How do you work through that thought? Yeah. So it's a, it's a tension. And it's, uh, it's a huge paradox. Osho said, until you become comfortable with paradox, you'll never raise your consciousness. And it is uh, to love an animal and to simultaneously need to kill it is a great tension. And I, I think the hard part is that most of our ancestors could understand that, but tension is not something that we're very comfortable with. I mean, honestly, no emotions are super comfortable for modern humans because we're not taught how to deal with them. But that's a huge part of the full spectrum of life, right? I mean, life is highs, lows. It is full of tension. And so there's, there is beauty in the tension. And it's kind of... For some people, it just doesn't compute. Right. But my invitation and the way that I kind of orient towards it is, can I feel both of those things at the same time and feel them fully? And that's the work. Uh, and I don't always have that opportunity. Sometimes, you know, I might numb an uncomfortable feeling. Um, you know, small example, I was out in Molokai just last week leading a group and Everyone is going out and they're killing axis deer and it's beneficial for the land and it's nourishing for the land and uh, also nourishing for them. And we had a, 
a mouse problem in the cabin where we were staying. And every single morning, there was a mouse caught in a glue trap. And every single morning, I felt a great deal of sadness that I had to kill them. There was no other real way around it. And I'm super grateful for the opportunity to to struggle with that, to struggle with death yep. and to not have it be just a repetitive thing that becomes numb. Yeah. The idea to what, you know, this kind of gets me thinking like, well, what's the, what's the alternative to that statement or that challenge? The challenge is, can you love something while it's simultaneously taking its life? And the, the alternative is not caring for it, not feeling for it or despising it and then taking its life, which that just doesn't feel like a, a good option. Right. Uh, obviously, I would rather approach that relationship with love. Yeah. I, I forgot. I'm constantly quoting, but uh, I forgot. I think it was Emerson who said this. We kill the very thing we love. And my sense is that, especially as it pertains to animals and, and meat, the the fact that people love animals so much and find them so cute and all these things leads them to disconnect from their death. And disconnection is the real source of the problem in the world. And so it, it really is bringing that prophecy true. The, because I am in close relationship with the death of this animal so that I will never forget, so that I will never be disconnected from the sacrifice that the earth has to make for me to be fed, Absolutely. the abundance that the land is providing me. And and then there's also this realization too, that there's different kinds of love, right? Like you love your partner different than you love your dog, differently than you love your, uh, the, the wildlife differently than you love your children. And so it's like the idea of love does not fit all. And so your relationship with everyone is different. I think that's something too, to take into account when you have that very complicated relationship with a wild animal, that's going to sacrifice its life to feed you. Yeah. And, you know, to that point, there's a way in which we can, lean into a different type of love because it's it's one thing to love an animal because of what it provides to us right and uh, you know many people actually treat their romantic love in that way what what can this person provide to me and so you know for me when it comes to the relationship with the animal it's really easy to see for out for all of us to kind of dehumanize in a way this animal and love the fact that it provides me with sustenance and be grateful for that. And that's one level, but I, and not to make this like a, a better level, but it, it is a deeper level to lean into the tension and actually like seek it out. And so one of the ways that I do that, and one of the ways that I bring that into the experiences that I create is I have people write a love letter to the animal that they're hunting. And I have them like see if a name comes up. And many of them have names that are, they don't know where it came from. It's just intuitive. And when they name that animal, when they write the love letter to the animal, it is essentially saying to them, I realize there's a tension with killing, but I'm going to go all the way 
to the depths of it instead of avoiding it. Wow. That's an awesome ceremony. Awesome idea. I love that. And I think that yeah, just sets this beautiful foundation for what happens after the killing or the transition into death. Like you still love that and you care for it. And so it's like that expression will follow it all the way until its final form, which is to nourish you. Yeah. And to have that being be a part of me, you know, I have a real pride that all that these named animals are with me and I've had some really profound, you know, out of out of body type of experiences, uh, altered states experiences where I've connected to the spirits of these animals that are within me. And, you know, that's a pretty profound experience. Yeah, I bet. So why, why is a spiritual connection to nature, um, or source important? And uh, what are the barriers that currently keep us from that? Mm. I think at some level, we all want to feel connected to something that's greater than ourselves, And in many ways, that was the reason for Christianity's rise and, you know, Islam and all of these organized religions. And I think what we've started to see recently, there's not a ton of people who are super religious anymore. And that doesn't mean you can't take you know, the wisdom from these wisdom traditions, but something like 70 to 80% of my generation identifies as being spiritual, but not religious. And I think in that void, we have an opportunity to take a lesson from our ancestors and hunter gatherers, indigenous people all over the world. They saw their natural environment as filled with their gods and deities. And so they had a rich spiritual life. And that has been with us for so, so long as a species. Honestly, it it predates our spirituality, predates most of the ways that we live, right? And it's very associated with hunting uh, and with, you know, the animals that provide us with sustenance, right? Mm -hmm. Of course, we will deify something that keeps us alive. And so a deer and an elk that feed us is a form of God. And so I think it's pretty deep in us that we want to have a connection to nature. We want to have a connection to this, you know, universal uh, one entity that is, you know, binding us all. And for me, it I just luckily, you know, found the right avenues where I could experience that in nature. So it's been uh, really important for me to share that with others and share that avenue for others. Yep. And and I feel and I see what you're saying, how people in this, our generation are, they're more comfortable saying things like source or light or creator than outright saying Jesus or God or Muhammad or, or who, you know, like a specific given religion. And I consider myself spiritual, but I also go to church. Um, and, and I guess I find myself in a little bit of this confused area where like, what's the difference between spirituality and religion? And, and where do they, oh, I mean, it's obvious where they overlap, but how do you kind of break separate them? Yeah, I think for me anyway, spirituality is a direct relationship to God or source. 
And that is practices, that is a way of being, a way of living that create an opportunity for for one to have uh, a deep, unfiltered connection to something that is higher than oneself. Where religion can be confusing is oftentimes they insert a middleman. They insert a middleman when it comes to, you know, different scriptures and books, when it comes to the way to live, where it comes to, uh, you know, a, a pastor who's sharing some things. And of course, as with meat, there's a nourishing way to involve oneself with religion. And then there's a, you know, disconnected form, right? Yeah. And unfortunately, the power of connection to God has in many cases, not all, but in many cases been co-opted for, you know, the benefit of the few. It, it becomes kind of a power grab, essentially. You know, we see it with the Catholic Church and et cetera. And so I was lucky, and that's one of the reasons why I think that entheogens, you know, psychedelic substances, altered states of consciousness, even like uh, Vision Quest or uh, uh, sweat lodge can be so powerful because they create a direct relationship where one can feel the presence of a higher power, whether it's just neurological or not. I don't right. really care. That feeling leads me to be a better person. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, for someone who, you know, wants to find that distinction. And I think men are in this place where they oftentimes don't know how to find spirituality. And that's why I speak to men a lot because, uh, you know, women oftentimes will go to yoga to have spiritual experiences or other types of, of practices. And I do think for men, especially, but just humans, hunting can be a direct connection to something greater. Yeah. I hearing you talk, especially early on about that connection to spirituality, to earth, religion, it's, it's really fascinating to me that almost, I can't think of many religions or cultures, especially indigenous that don't have some kind of really cool origin story stemming from the earth or stemming from animals of the earth that they have relationship with. And and I think one of my favorites is the Lakota tribe just saw creation as being birthed from this, I think it's Wind Cave in South Dakota. And they came from the cave alongside bison. And like, that was how the people and the animals were born together, entered this world. And so, you know, I think there is that like some kind of ancient wisdom there that we are all one and all connected with, again, this earth that we come from and we depend on. Yeah. And the stories are so interesting for us to to view. And also I think it's sometimes hard for us as materialistic as we are to really discern the wisdom that is coming through those indigenous cultures. And, you know, the Udigay in Far East Russia, I went and visited them. They they hold the Siberian tiger to be God, Amba. And it is incredible to, to see the wisdom with which they treat the animal, which obviously today translates to how they protect the habitat, how they avoid conflict with the animal and things like that. Whereas, you know, those who are 
indoctrinated in a different type of way of relating are far less thoughtful. Yes. You're a student of Rudolf Steiner, right? Are you've read some biodynamic text and books? I get some Rudolf Steiner from very different sources. I haven't read any of his books okay. in, in, in their entirety, but I do like him. There, there's this idea um, where he thinks that a connection to earth, uh, a connection to a higher being, God, spirituality is comes through the food that we eat. And once there was a separation with how food was produced in nature's image to more mechanized, industrialized version, specifically the uh, substance of nitrogen being converted from a natural occurring form in the atmosphere to the plant through legumes, he saw nitrogen as being this vehicle for sentience. And once that nitrogen was removed from the food, the living nitrogen, then we were no longer consuming food that fulfilled us in a spiritual way. And that's that, that is what has led our culture more in this materialistic direction where we're just trying to fill that spiritual void through lack of consuming nourishing foods connected to earth. Yeah. I mean, Rudolf Steiner is an incredible thinker. And when it comes to you know, how we diverged, I think it's, it's multifaceted. Uh, there's so many different ways in which we have separated ourselves from nature. And one case in point, because we talked about spirituality and religion, which I think is, you know, worth bringing up in this instance, the cultures in the Middle East that birthed Abrahamic religions, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, they all came from a place of being shepherd societies. So you see it all throughout the Bible and all of the holy texts, shepherds maintaining flock of sheep and everything was a major, uh, a major theme motif in the books. And what are shepherds afraid of? Predators. Because they have their food source is needing to be protected, is vulnerable, is weak in certain instances. And so just that foundation meant that, you know, the Judeo-Christian world, all of Europe, the Americas, once the Europeans came to the Americas, is basically governed with this underlying fear of predators and this and this almost uh, competitiveness. Whereas, you know, hunter-gatherer tribes in the Americas that didn't have these animals, livestock to manage, they saw the jaguar, the puma as deities and gods, and they sought to protect both them and their environment more holistically. And so there's just so many of these little tiny differences that have sent us down really, you know, uh, incredibly different paths. And that's kind of our job now as, you know, people in the 21st century is how do we discern what the path forward is with all of this history and even more like rapid, you know, growth and evolution. And, uh, it's really a challenge. So what is, so in, in the 21st century, returning to hunting, how does hunting in your experience as a, as a method connect you to God? Mm. Yeah. Being many different ways. One is being in, you know, if I don't eat, if I don't, uh, 
consume the abundance of the earth, I will die. And part of participating in that action allows me to be connected to that circle of life and death and the ways in which that connects me to my own death, my own mortality, because I won't be here forever. And, you know, the Stoics and pretty much every wisdom tradition really emphasized being connected to one's own mortality. And that's a huge part of especially the masculine kind of medicine is to be connected to death. Uh, and through that, you know, the higher power that we can't run from no matter what we do, no matter who we are, no matter how great we think of ourselves. So death plays a really big role and being connected and intimate with that. You know, there's a moment, especially when I'm by myself and I kill an animal, when it's as still and as quiet and as close to source as I ever come. And those are really profoundly moving experiences to be a witness to. When I've had some of those similar experiences, and it's so neat how everyone has different um, variations of that. But one of the most profound realizations for me was like this whole concept of, you know, we already touched on like this cycle of life. It takes life to sustain life. But then truly, once you see it and you participate in it, you realize there really is no no end because it's just like this opportunity for rebirth and that gift that now those nutrients, that energy cycle it into you so that you can live your best, most fulfilling, meaningful life. And then at the end of your journey, those nutrients and your spirit, again, will be cycled into something else. And I feel like that's just a really important lesson that I've learned through participating in the transition of death. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And and there's also something about participating that's a, it's at a what I, how I answered it in your you know description is also at a very like a high level. There's also a part that has me love the natural world more than I ever could otherwise. And for me, God is the earth. It, it is, it is all things here. It is in the trees. It is in, in the animals. And uh, I don't, I don't, you know, ascribe to the belief that I have dominion over the animals, which is a very, you know, Christian belief. Uh, and so for me, there's a way in which I, I can't compare other people's relationship, but just the excitement that I have when I see animals and I need to stop and everyone else in the car is like, uh, Monsel, this is like the eighth deer we've seen today. That excitement to me leads me to believe that hunting has connected me more to these animals, had me fall deeper in love with them and witnessing them and connecting to them. And that's, that's really important because we, we can go through this cycle of life and death where we essentially turn everything living on this planet into human biomass or the biomass of a few different species like chickens and beef or whatever the case might be. And, uh, and then we could go even further 
where some people want to go with, you know, lab grown food and we're just, uh, we're not even eating, you know? So I think we have to really look back and see like, what is the world that we want to live in and being connected to nature in the way that hunting brings me allows me a much clearer picture of what I want, you know, the world to look and feel like, uh, instead of letting our own momentum create something that we don't actually want. So can you describe some examples of, um, indigenous practice or wisdom as it pertains to, uh, harvesting an animal or, or even hunting an animal that has impacted you or you've learned and grown from? Yeah. Yeah. One of them comes from the Navajo tradition, which they are really clear that when someone goes out on the hunt, they are literally becoming an animal and they, uh, you know, in their language, they become a wolf. And so they will go into a sweat lodge before they go out on the hunt. They come out of the sweat lodge. They go in, oops, they go in as a human. They come out as an animal. And in many cases, they don't talk in human language the whole duration of the hunt. And then after they're done with the hunt, they go back in the sweat lodge in order to become man again. And, you know, from that, there is a real reminder for me to recognize the full spectrum of what it means to be human. I spend a lot of time in the spiritual world in the in that world it's really easy to be more sacred and sincere and reverent and also there's this whole other side which is I'm an animal that wants to fuck and wants to you know do all these things that society considers bad and wrong and even anyone who listens to this see what happened with your body when I just said that you know, cause that's like the sin, but that's <clears throat> the animal. Right. And we're both. And that tradition just reminds me of my animal self and to be really clear in and embodied and integrated in that when it's necessary. That's so cool. The, yeah. Hearing you talk, I, there's this one video that I've seen. It's like on YouTube. It's uh, it's either the Maasai Mara tribe or uh, one of the indigenous tribes in Australia. And they're doing this thing called persistence hunting. And they'll like chase an animal on foot for hours. And it's a group of guys doing this. And, uh, and you watch them do it and they become the wolf. They become the animal. I mean, it's wild. They don't talk. They'll they're running full speed for hours at times. And, uh, like if there's a split in the trail when they don't know, like, did the animal run left or right? It probably went through this area five minutes ago, you know, like they tap into that instinct and that wisdom of the wolf or the apex predator and they feel which way the animal wins. Like nine out of 10 times they're right. So after hours of this persistence hunting, they eventually wear the animal down and then they go up to it while it's just exhausted and dropped. And they have this really intimate experience where they kill it. They finish it with a knife, typically to the throat, and it dies in their hands. But there's uh, there's like that such an intimate connection with the animal when you are that predator species that recognizes the dynamic and the relationship there. Yeah, absolutely. And there's even myths. I don't know how true this is, but there's a myth of 
a North American indigenous culture that would do persistence hunting, just as you've described. But the way that they would kill the animal just reflects how how they desired to bring beauty and intimacy and connection to the whole process. So it was a first time hunter. The first time a boy was to kill a deer was to persistence hunt after the animal and to kill it was to suffocate it with a handful of flowers. And the idea was that the animal's final moments of life would be with beautiful fragrances and these beautiful smells. And so, yeah, there's just a disposition that indigenous people had to to be connected to that paradox mm-hmm. whether it be the navajo and the you know sacred animal paradox or the killing of this animal with the beauty and the killing at the same time yeah so as a texas boy you got to have some level of admiration and awe when it comes to like the comanches which would have been like the tribe that roamed the Great Plains, rolled back westward expansion, kicked the white man's ass for many, many years. Um, there's this story that I've read in, in many journals and accounts of the pioneers' relationships with them where they would capture a child, typically a boy, and then the boy would be like a horse herder or something in the in the community of the tribe of the indigenous. And there are these stories, multiple accounts where communities would harvest a bison, take out the liver, and then put bile on the liver, eat it fresh. That was kind of one of the first things they celebrated. Have you tried this or any variation of it? Doesn't have to be bison. I have, yeah. I mean, I definitely have had liver. I've had liver with the bile squeezed onto it. I think both intentionally and unintentionally. <laughs> and uh, coming back from Hawaii, I, I, I drank amniotic fluid. It's like a, every year we go over there and the it's about the time when a lot of the Axis deer are pregnant. And so we'll, I'll introduce those who are up for it, who can stomach it to amniotic fluid. And there's something for me anyway, there is something very, uh, like connected to the life force energy of this creature that brings up. And I can imagine how, you know, liver would be that as well, given how much nutrition is in it. But I've had a lot of weird things, man. So the verdict is, is still out there. Do you think that the Comanche lore of putting bile on the liver, was that uh, a prank to trick the white man and, and like laugh at him? Or was that an actual like ceremony tribal thing. I don't know that it would necessarily be a ceremony. The way that we perceive ceremonies today is very different from the way that they did oftentimes. But I mean, if you, if one looks at like the most nutrient dense part of an animal liver is definitely up there. Yeah, I could see them just wanting to get, immediately to the most nutritious part of the animal as soon as possible. Uh, predators do it. Yep. You know, it's whether or not they put bile on it. Yeah. That, so that's for us. We've, we've done that. We'll do that a couple times a year and with groups of people that are like, 
you, which I would say is like on the spectrum of you're going into this experience, like this is going to be fucking awesome. Yeah. I'm going to love it. I'm, I can't wait. And then nine out of 10 times, people are just looking at each other being like, oh shit, who's going to, who's going to lie and say this was great. Right. Everyone's trying not to gag. It's like, I've, been, I've heard it described as jet fuel or diesel. Um, but it's a pretty intense experience. I, I want to share that experience with you. So you'll have to come out for a bunch of I'm definitely open year. to it. I would not say that I am super stoked to do it. <laughs> and I would not say that I would not oh, gag man. as well. I really don't. Uh, when I eat organs, I, I eat them raw primarily. Absolutely. I don't, except heart. I actually absolutely love heart. But when it comes to liver and stuff like that, I eat them raw and I try not to chew them just small pieces and they go straight down. I'm not, I don't pretend like I absolutely love organs. Yeah. The liver is the only way to do it raw, man. I, um, I've had a liver that I would liken to uh, Honeycrisp apples or Gala apples, peaches. So they had that fresh liver experience is, is bliss. And the second you refrigerate it or store it, it changes like within hours. And so I'd say if you don't like liver as a consumer who's never eaten it for hot off an animal, you're not eating the real deal. Yeah. I'd and I find it. that I find that I honestly wild game is actually more palatable than liver from a cow. Sure. I believe that. Um, so what are some modern ways to incorporate ceremony into hunting um, or harvesting an animal? And if you could kind of give some examples, like as you're going through um, your experiences, like what are some things you guys do beforehand? You mentioned the, the love letter, but, you know, before, during and then after the harvest. Yeah. So for a, a lot of people, what I would recommend is uh, starting off with some type of fasting. And I think fasting has been very much in the zeitgeist lately from a health perspective. There's so many benefits, intermittent fasting, fat loss, all these kinds of things, and all that's great. And there's also a way to approach it from a spiritual perspective. So I'll do a three-day fast quarterly, and that's no food. I've sometimes done them, no food and no water. And you know, then the first meal that I have is something that's wild game or something like that. Um, but for a lot of people, I really recommend they go into the practice fasted and it's just, you know, a pathway to spirituality is appreciation and gratitude and taking a moment to just be both appreciative and, and grateful and to really honor the abundance that an animal is providing when they sacrifice their life, the only thing we can do is to like give up of ourself for a period of time. And so I find that to be a really profound physical experience. And anybody who's, you know, three, four days into a fast will, you know, if you just meditate on this animal that either you have hunted or you are hunting and just see how much more appreciation comes up, it suddenly goes from, uh, well, I got, you know, a deer, 40 pounds of meat to the absolute most intense emotional connection to the animal. And so I think that's a really simple way to get out of our head around it and just like into our body. And there's nothing that's going to get you into your body 
quite faster than yeah. you know dying <laughs> literally slowly mm -hmm. and uh so that's I think, a great idea yeah that's a that's one that i i start with and i recommend for people i love that just sacrifice in general mm -hmm. you know for indigenous people really a lot uh, a lot of them would emphasize sacrifice. If this animal is going to sacrifice, I must sacrifice. So that's the food, obviously. There's also sexual sacrifice. Like people would, uh, I think it was the Cherokee, they would have a week before they were going out on the hunt where they would not have any sex at all. It was, it was a, a time to be absent in respect mm -hmm. of the animal. Uh, and so uh, also there's a, a lot of cleansing type of rituals, whether that be through the sweat lodge, mm -hmm. cleanse before going out on the hunt. S the Cherokee also did things in the water. So they would go into like a really cold, frigid water cool. and basically, you know, dip in the water to cleanse themselves before they went out on the hunt. So, you know, sacrifice, cleansing, those are two themes, motifs that a lot of indigenous yeah. cultures use before they go hunting. Cool. What about that moment um, where you're walking up on that animal? How do, in your mind for like the modern hunter, what's a, what's a way to best connect to that animal in the greater picture? Yeah. You know, when it comes to that moment, I know some people have mantras, some people say things and everything. For me, that moment is meant for presence. And that is, that is, you know, every arrow that I shoot is part of my prayer for that animal, but that's leading up to that moment. When I'm in that moment, when I'm about to kill an animal or lead someone to do so, I'm holding space for that animal and for myself and the best way for the masculine to hold space is just incredible presence. And so I really just focus on what is present and it's, you know, for me, it's, it's, uh, it's hard not to be present in that moment because I've just been so trained that everything comes down to this moment. Yeah. And so that's really what we do at the time of the, of the, the hunt and the shot itself afterwards though, you know, I like, I like totems. I think us as humans, especially being disconnected from our roots, we sometimes need something we can physically hold or be with that can evoke a deeper reflection. And so for a lot of indigenous people in North America, it was tobacco. And so I'll have everybody, myself included, will have some tobacco with them. When we kill an animal, we use the tobacco. We say a prayer, it's an offering. So I'm giving back the tobacco to the earth, thanking it for giving the abundance. And I'm giving it tobacco because tobacco is such a sacred and, uh, you know, spiritual plant. But for modern people, it's not just the connection to tobacco, it's taking the time. Tobacco tells me, oh, this is time to be in appreciation and gratitude for the sacrifice of this animal. Uh, and that's just what I associate, you know, tobacco with. And I think it's really important to have those kind of totems, markers that allow us to, <clears throat> to come back to some kind of center. We've had two people come out to bison harvest, uh, at Rome ranch. And 
these two people on different accounts brought out the tobacco and were doing their own thing, kind of off from the group. And at first, they just didn't know what to think of it or make of it and went up and talked to him afterwards. And, and they both mentioned you as kind of like this teacher um, of this practice. And it was like such an important part of right after that transition into death to sharing it. Um, so that's new to me, but I've seen it firsthand and it's very powerful stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, glad to hear that. So um, when, I, when I think about people that have that are like intimately connected to to death. I mean, you, you got to think like emergency room doctors or like first responders, medics, soldiers. Um, but I feel like you're in this really unique position as a guide. So a hunter, but also a hunter who guides other people on journeys. So you're like hunting more than almost anyone I know. You're coming face to face with, with death. What have you observed? Like what, in your opinion, of course, this is everyone's experience is different, but what is happening as an, an animal is transitioning into death. Mm. Yeah, I mean it it varies depending on the death in my experience. I think sometimes you know what is happening for the animal is really challenging for me to speculate. What I know is that what's happening to me and to those who are in the presence of that death is profound. So I can, you know, I can speculate on some of the moments when the animal seemed really peaceful and just transitioning from one dimension to the next dimension. But I also have experiences where it was a violent transition. And so what I really focus on is what is the gift of this experience for me and for others? And how is it bringing something that animal can provide meat, but it can also provide such a great piece of wisdom for us that permeates the rest of our life. And so, you know, for some of these people who are ER doctors and all that kind of stuff, I really, really empathize, especially when humans involve are involved to the part of themselves that wants to almost numb the sensations that come with that kind of intensity. And, you know, I work with combat veterans who come on these types of experiences and I have seen it present for sure. And what I try to do with people is to lean into that moment because whatever is coming up, feelings and emotions is kind of, is another gift of the death of that animal. And that's a really important gift to take away. And so for me, the work really is being that close to death is to feel the, all of the animals that die. And I know exactly how many animals have died on sacred hunting experiences, 144 experience, uh, animals. And, but at the same time, not feel the overwhelming burden of all of that death that I'm creating mm-hmm. because <clears throat> the reason why, you know, emergency docs and things like that numb is as a defense mechanism to, to do their job when it feels really heavy. Yes. And so that is kind of the balance for me is finding how do I ensure that I'm connected to it and I never lose that emotional response while at the same time letting go of the burden of, you know, carrying all of these animals' souls on my 
psyche. Yep. Yeah, I think the intensity that you, you speak of in that moment uh, where some people shut down, it's kind of like a natural reaction. Um, one of the things that I, I see people do and kind of default to is like this, this idea or this like phrase, which is like something along the lines of like the lights are going out or like that, that translates to it was a peaceful death or the animals gone. It's like the lights are out. But in, in the more and more harvest that I've been a part of it, it's like such a disservice to say like any lights are going out. And especially it's like when we talk about that energy, just continuously cycling, it's the more that I see it, it's like the lights are expanding or brightening or it's like little particles of lights are leaving. And, um, you know, like there's this idea with uh, like quantum physics where like the observer and the phenomena are intimately connected. They're inseparable. But what you seek is what you will find. And I think when you go into that death experience, looking for something greater, looking for something more profound and spiritual, you're more able to see this greater expansion of energy. And, and that's something that when you're hunting wild game, you know, you shoot a deer and the herd, the animal that is shot drops, the herd is miles away by the time you come up to that animal. So you don't get to see how other animals react. Bison are a unique species because when you harvest one, they will not run off. It was just, they never co-evolved with like that type of pressure. And so you get to learn from the herd and see how they react to that. And it's really neat. Every animal will come up to that downed animal and they'll circle it. And they're all taking turns getting in there, nudging it, licking it. Some kind of processing is happening. And then they'll just move off one by one. It's about a five to 10 minute ceremony. Um, and then the last animal to leave is always that animal's mother or the calf. And so I think that's a really sacred experience to witness that. And then, yeah, just a gift to as to observe it. Like what, it, what can we learn from that? Yeah. Like you said. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I can even just feel my own uh, experiences with that. You know, I've had, I've had my first kill actually was on an antelope that was part of a, a, a herd of black buck. And I remember watching as basically all of its family members, you know, went up to it and smelled it and, and I could sense had a different, uh, demeanor about them. You know, they came in, they were happy, they were playful, they were jumping, they left and they were all like head was low. And that was pretty impactful for me for my first kill to just experience the impact that it has, not just on that animal, but on those around it and the whole ecosystem around it. And so, yeah, I think, you know, my spiritual teacher used to always say that it wasn't death. It was walking through the big door. And for him, it was just a, a transition to, from one place to another. And we, you know, we go through doors, we go through door when we come into the world, we go through another door when we leave. And there's probably many other doors that we can't conceive of, but it is, there is a, a sense that, you know, we don't fully understand the, we definitely don't understand what happens next, but our own hubris and relationship to our own mortality sometimes can paint the, the experience in that way. Yep. And consumers not necessarily asking the questions about how an animal dies, how that matters if they're buying meat from a grocery store or a restaurant, typically consumers, even hunters, like they really want to focus on like how that animal lived 
where it was raised, what diet did it eat, you know, like all these questions about um, the welfare of the animal, which are good, great questions to ask, but there's not a lot of people asking the questions of like, how does that animal die? And so, what is the the value in um, specifically how an animal dies? How does that, why is that meaningful to us as consumers of that meat? Yeah, it's a good question. I think for a lot of people, for me, it, it just it really comes down to the connection, like the value on my physical body of knowing how an animal died. If I can feel it, I remember there was experiences where I had to put a knife in an animal to end its life. And I could feel that in my chest every time I would take a moment to eat. Right. And that is, it's an incredible meditation on everything that's involved. So I have a harder time, you know, projecting onto how an animal died in a disconnected fashion. You know, like obviously I think that uh, we have some major issues from a, you know, livestock perspective when an animal can live its whole life super, super well, but, and be grass fed, grass finished, all these, you know, beautiful things. But then the slaughter facilities are super, super, uh, uh, bottlenecked to, you know, a few companies that fulfill in a very specific way. That's honestly not that great. And I think there's something to that, like energetically, and it's hard for me to, yeah, it's hard for me to reconcile that other than I need to do it myself. I need to know how this thing died myself. Yeah. I've been struggling with that too. I mean, I feel like the, you have to recognize that there's a greater transfer of, of energy. It's like thermodynamics, you know, energy is never created or destroyed. It's just always cycling. It's always transferred. And so it's like, what about, obviously do you get the energy from the meat, the sustenance, the nourishment, but what about the spiritual energy that that animal gives you? And then how does its end of life impact that? That's just something that we're not studying. We're not talking about, but to your point, like there has to be a different spiritual energy transferred with an animal that was harvested and it's environment with its family or community eating its favorite food versus an animal that was trucked across the country and then slaughtered under artificial lights with, you know, foreign smells, a lot of terror. Yeah. I, I, it totally makes sense to me, uh, from a spiritual perspective that the death of an animal really makes a difference. I think it's also becoming more well understood at a scientific level. I mean, there are people like uh, Zach Bush and uh, Dr. Daniel Stickler, who I've heard talk about messenger and microRNA and how essentially the final moments of an animal's life is being connected to its actual body through these messenger microRNA. And I remember Zach Bush makes this one reference where he says, you know, if you feel really anxious and are struggling with, you know, depression at work at some point in the middle of the day, maybe it's the chicken sandwich you just ate because that chicken was likely 
very anxious and depressed in its final moments of death. And, you know, I don't know what the validity of it is, but it's, it intuitively just seems so obvious that the death of an animal would communicate something about its, uh, you know, being to the meat. That's so, so good. So fascinating. I wish we knew more about that. And that's absolutely something that we should be paying more attention to. Um, so as hunting as this, um, as an opportunity to experience a rite of passage from one stage of life into another stage, say like boyhood to manhood, that is as old as the human experience, but has recently, uh, I'd say we've been severed from rites of passage, at least in our modern civilization here in the United States. And so what is, uh, how did hunting act as a, a ceremony for rite of passage? Um, and how can we reincorporate that into our lives? Why does it matter? Yeah, I I do think that a lot of we've seen in modern men, especially this Peter Pan syndrome, where essentially boys remain boys well into adulthood. They behave like boys. And there is something really powerful about having guidance. Of course, you know, rites of passage are one element of helping boys transition into manhood, but there's obviously plenty of, it's multifaceted. You have to have the elders, you have to have, you know, all these other things. But when there's a real clear delineation between boyhood and manhood, it just creates a certain decorum for how a man has to behave versus how a boy behaved. And so, you know, the reason hunting was so linked in these uh, cultures was because literally you could not become a man. You could not be considered a man until you could hunt successfully. And that was because, you know, I read this beautiful book, The Wizard of the Upper Amazon, where they have a bunch of a really in-depth understanding of, you know, this, this one tribe in the Amazon jungle. And basically if a person, if a man, a boy could not adequately hunt and provide for a family, he couldn't leave his household and start a new household. He just didn't have what it took to responsibly lead a family. And So I think it's really deeply ingrained in us and men in particular that being able to hunt is a real, you know, rite of passage into a type of manhood. And so, yeah, I I think for today's uh, boys and men, creating some type of rite of passage is, is, is imperative and doing so in a way that is challenging is probably the most effective route because if you look back at indigenous cultures, whether it's the the bullet ant glove or the, you know, like fasting for uh, many, many days on end, some cultures would, would put, you know, the boys into a cave underground for like months of darkness. And these were all incredibly challenging because they were meant to like a diamond create pressure that takes this you know inadequate uh, reliant being and turns him into this diamond which is a uh, 
contributing, responsible man. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like all, all these elements that go into hunting to master these elements just makes you a better person, a better man, like lessons like patience, perseverance, strength, fortitude. I mean, like these are characteristics that you should want to embody yourself as a man, but also you should hope that your children and gratitude, like you had mentioned too, gratitude and appreciation. I think that's like the highest tier. Um, and so, yeah, without hunting as a catalyst for that, I mean, there's certainly other ways to do it, but it makes sense that we try to find modern iterations of that. Yeah. Yeah. And to that point, you know, I don't want to make it seem like, the way that I lead experiences or the way that I hunt is necessarily the right way, even though ironically, a lot of people who want to come on experiences literally use that phrase. It sounds like you do it the right way. <laughs> sure. I always feel a little bit uncomfortable with it. But I do think that a lot of the hunting culture of the country misses out on something really special in the rite of passage as it pertains to emotions and feelings, because we live in a culture that is very disconnected from our emotions and feelings. And, you know, what we are not connected to becomes a shadow. And as Jung says, the only way that we can get taken down by our shadow is from behind. And if what I say is true, which is that we're not taught how to be connected to our emotions and feelings, and it would make sense that a great way to teach young boys is through the process of hunting. And I certainly will teach my, you know, all my children, but males especially, to lean into the feelings and emotions that come up. I can't tell you the number of guys who had a BB gun or a slingshot and they killed a bird when they were young. I mean, a child, six to eight years old, and they still remember that. And they come to my hunt 30 years later and they still have this memory of sadness around just killing an animal. I think it's there. Yeah. It's innate for us to be emotional beings. We just have a beautiful opportunity in the hunting world to create an integrated masculine rite of passage, not just here are some traditional ways of being masculine, but full spectrum, you know, both the masculine and the feminine that's within all of us. Yes. Um, when my kids, like I, I'll take them to the zoo um, and they see like living animals, their attention span is pretty short. Like even a, a lion, you're like, holy shit, that's a lion. And they'll like dig it for 20 seconds. And then it's like, okay, let's go to the, le the lemur or the raccoon. Um, but if we're like out on a walk or I'll take them on bike rides and we see like a dead armadillo in the road. I mean, they could look at the dead armadillo for five minutes and it's completely silent and they're just talk about it for days and reflect on it, talk about it before they go to bed. And so, yeah, that's something that's pretty, there's something that is in there that is ingrained. They'll probably, like you said, remember that for the rest of their lives. But it's almost like so fascinating that a dead animal can be more interesting than a live animal in the mind of a child. Yeah. I'm curious about the mind of your, you know, your children and what it, what is happening for them in the zoo. You know, I'm very biased 
because I spent time in prison. Uh-huh. I can't go to zoos. I can't see these kinds of creatures yeah, yeah. in cages and things like that. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I just wonder how, you know, unconscious, uh, maybe, maybe for your children, there's like, okay, next. I don't yeah. know if I'm fully comfortable with this thing in a cage. Good point. Yeah. Cause it's very, dis- like it's very disconnected from how they would have experienced animals. Right. Like Absolutely. a lion would create terror. Mm-hmm. So they get it that there's a barrier here. Yes. But there's something that's amiss. I used to take, um, Scout when she was like one to two years old. One of our favorite, just like killing time on a Saturday was to go to Cabela's and they had, it was really just to see like the natural history museum of like taxidermy grizzly bears and pronghorn and the thousand other creatures, elephants, giraffes. And it was so fascinating because at like one, two years old, I'd put her in front of uh, like an elk. And she would just be super chill, happy about it. And then I'd put her in front of a pronghorn, same thing, a raccoon. And then I'd put her in front of like an apex predator, like a wolf or a a lion or a bear. And she would instinctively freak out. And and there was no parental bias. It was no like, all right, now we're going to go to the thing that that would kill you in the wild. Uh, It was literally like, I just want to see your reaction as a social experience. Experiment. Yeah, that stuff's in them. There's knowledge. Oh, for sure. They've done studies on children as old as like one, two, pre-verbal, pre-verbal children. And questions like when the lion catches the zebra, it will blank and almost like 80, 90% of very young children can understand that lion is going to kill the zebra. There's a deep, deep understanding there that is beyond like what we culturally, you know, create for them. So maybe this is going to answer this question, but you're going to have to kind of back up a little bit because I'm not super familiar with archetypes. And I know you've already talked about like, we are killers we have a killer archetype. What is a killer archetype and how do you express that in a healthy way? But even maybe before that, what the hell is an archetype? Yeah. Archetypes, it depends on, you know, who you're talking to and how they manage them. Uh, so I'll just give you a few examples. So within masculinity, Robert Bly and Jung kind of narrowed it down to four major archetypes. There's the king, the warrior, the magician, and the lover. And they're kind of ways in which, you know, there's there's different parts of ourselves. And, uh, you know, the king might be more in relationship to how we govern our lives, like make this decision versus that decision. So that's kind of coming from kind of a kingly place could also come from a tyrannical place, right? So tyrant and king are, are two sides of the same coin. Then you have you know, magician, which is a little bit more like there's devious elements. There's the, there's like planning and scheming and uh, organizing and things like that. And then of course you have the warrior. So those are kind of the main four archetypes for males. Uh, And then there's literally hundreds. You can find an archetype for all different aspects of oneself. And basically they're ways to acknowledge a, kind of a, a, a mythical character or mythical caricature that is within ourself. And so, you know, the way that that applies to an inner killer is acknowledging that, you know, when I was, or when my ancestors hundreds, thousands of years ago were 
uh, in, uh, in India or in Scandinavia, I've mixed genetics. Um, they had a relationship with killing that was different and was probably a lot more violent. And, you know, for them, it was just, I'm going to kill to take what I want. Right. And so I have to acknowledge that that's what's in the collective, like what's in some part of humanity is also in me. And if we cast that out, like, oh, that's not me, then usually what happens is that archetype lives in different ways in our shadow. And so my point with, you know, identifying the killer archetype is trying to integrate that as part of my life. So I live day to day. I don't, I don't want to express in a violent way, in a controlling way, et cetera. It's a, it it falls within, you know, some of these archetypes. So I don't feel like I did a very good job of explaining to you what an archetype is, but, but they're, 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 yeah, they're points of reference for us to, to see deeper within ourselves yep and to be really mindful of how they show up because a lot of people a lot of people don't want to acknowledge right what is in everybody and there's some massive consequences to that huge especially with this killer archetype um we see like the worst manifestations of it in modern civilization um so how do you how do you live with that archetype and express it in a healthy way? Yeah, one is to accept it. You know, one is to like accept and hold it and hold its value and then also to direct it in a very specific way. So if I can take this killer and decide I'm going to direct it towards a very intentional killing of an animal that I will share with my community, with myself to feed myself. I've now taken that kind of instinct to kill and just directed it in a healthful way. And, you know, the sad thing is, is I I 100% agree with you as it pertains to this archetype. A lot of the literally within this vegan vegetarian question there's an element of denying the killer. Like I eat, you know, as an example, I eat vegan so that I don't kill an animal, not realizing that that is actually contributing to all this monocropping, all this like industrial farming, all this complete destruction at a much, much greater scale. So that is a perfect example of do we choose to integrate it and identify it and live in relationship to it or just ignore it and allow it to come out in, you know, the most destructive ways. Yeah. There's this, since you've been dropping just some badass quotes, uh, one that I've, I've kind of tried to recite lately is this Wendell Berry quote where he says something along the lines of, uh, there's no such thing as to be able to live harmlessly without expense to ourselves. Uh, we depend on other creatures and survive by their deaths. To live, we must break the body and shed the blood of creation daily. And the point is that when we do that lovingly, knowingly, 
reverently and skillfully, that's a sacrament. But when we do that um, recklessly, um, sloppily, greedily, and ignorantly, that's a desecration. And mm-hmm. so I think there's also just like this deeper idea back to just the total disconnection from what it takes to sustain life, whether you're plant-based or animal-based. It's like, it's inseparable. It takes life to sustain life and you just can't run away from that. Yeah. And totally. And, and yeah, to make it as an aside so that I'm not just picking on vegans and vegetarians, someone who, you know, eats again, not trying to point fingers, but Chick-fil-A they literally have on their marketing, you know, this chicken that's happy. And we all know that like that food is, is the exact opposite. And so there's plenty of a way to have, to contribute to that dynamic, regardless of food choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, as it pertains to the death of these animals, one thing that I've found is being connected to death as much as I have and being able to see and witness the abundance that nature has provided. Humans are very reciprocal beings. You know, the reciprocity is such a huge aspect of being in community. And I definitely believe that there's more work for me to be done, but I can feel that there's a part of me that so is longing for a sense of completion to give my body back to the earth. Yeah. Like I would love my friends joke that I just want them to take my body and like sit me up against a tree and let the scavengers and all of the animals come and take me back yeah. to the earth because it's given so much to me. I get it. You know, it's my time to give it back. Yeah. I feel the same way. It's like, I want to, I want to go home. I want to go back to the embrace of the earth. And yeah, it gives me anxiety and fear to think of being put in a casket and being sterilized, not being able to remineralize the soil and feed the plants and then the animals that graze on those. It's not a good feeling. No. Um, so you, you helped me like learn archetype crash course 101 brilliantly. Um, the other thing that I, I want to learn a little bit more about before we end, which again, I, I don't know too much about is how do psycho- psychedelics and hunting kind of support one another? How do they go hand in hand? Yeah. So there's a lot of historical context and indigenous cultures from the very, very early stages of humanity have utilized altered states of consciousness in order to relate to hunting. So, you know, 6,000 years ago, you have in the caves of Spain, there are depictions of psilocybin mushrooms next to like mammoth type creatures and, you know, like elk type animals on the cave paintings. And so uh, it's just, really clear that they were in relationship to each other. And in that book, The Wizard of the Upper Amazon, there's multiple different quotes where they talk about essentially using these psychedelics, these altered states to connect to the spirit of the animals in the jungle or the forest, connect with the spirit of the animal that they're hunting, see the forest, see through the eyes of a jaguar in order to find prey. So there's a real sense of deeper connection to be more successful at a spiritual level or psychic level, 
uh, on the hunt. They call a lot of these substances hunting medicine in South American indigenous tribes. So long use of combo, ayahuasca, hape, and psilocybin uh, for the sake of hunting. And so we live in a different environment. And many of the people who come on my experiences don't really have the same kind of connection psychically to the world around them. You know, it's just a different worldview. And so the reason why I use them, the reason why I uh, believe they go so well together is really because of how they are a forcing function for people to feel deeply. Because anyone who has done, you know, psychedelics probably has an experience where it was, it was intense emotions. That's actually why a lot of people don't want to take them too often or are reticent to use psychedelics is because the intense emotions and feelings can be overwhelming. And so my whole goal with this experience is to create a space where you where people are killing an animal, right? Or hunting an animal. And the psychedelics bring a deeper sense of connection. Connection to themselves, connection to a lot of these archetypes we talked about. Why are they here? Why are they uh, you know, dedicating so much time and money and, and everything to coming to this type of experience. What kind of archetypes are they connecting to? Connection to the food that they're eating, of course, connection to death. So there's so many different ways of connecting in that environment. And obviously a lot of it has to do with where they are in their life. You know, someone can have a breakup with a romantic partner and they come on one of this experience on an experience like this and the psychedelics just bring up a lot in connection to themselves and their relationships. Sure. And so it's really about connection and really about having those feelings and those emotions be welcomed. And so a lot of that is the space, the, this what's called the set and setting where I'm essentially, you know, inviting them to feel their emotions and, you know, it's everyone doing it in silence on their own. So they're in their own experience and I kind of come and support them, you know, one at a time, but that's the intention for bringing it in the modern day. Got it. So the, the use of psychedelics, that's like pregame, pre-hunt, right? And then, or is it during it's the hunt? Right too? in the middle of the weekend, but we're not actually hunting at the time. Yeah. Wow. So that makes tons of sense for someone who's struggling to get in tune with their own soul or their own body or even looking for a greater out-of-body experience. And of course, there's there's ways to do it without psychedelics. Like like for me, it's, it's all about trail running. That's like meditative. Uh, I just love it. It's like out-of-body experience bliss. But I think I'm I'm the exception, kind of like the outlier as far as people that are willing to to find that work and put in that time to to figure it out. And so I see how like psychedelics is just such an important part of that experience to be in the right headspace for that spiritual transformation. Oh, totally. Yeah. And there's so many ways to to do it. And, you know, a lot of the rites of passage we talked about before and like sweat lodge, vision quest, fasting, all these kinds yeah. of things. That oh, absolutely. Th those provide a deep, you know, connection to feelings and emotions as well. Uh, and we live in a, you know, a culture that appreciates the direct access. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so, you know, oftentimes for someone who's just starting out, it's like, uh, if these people, uh, they, they may have had experience with psychedelics before, but this sometimes is like, they can't 
control it. They can't stuff it down even if they wanted to, which is kind of sure. my intention. Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. Yeah, you're creating the space for that. Um, okay. I want to end on on some wisdom here. So when you look into nature for inspiration and guidance, what is an example of wisdom that has served you to living a better life? So, you know, looking into nature, what lessons are there that have transformed you? Mm. I mean, one is that I can think of, which is very present for me, is just humility. And there's a tendency, you know, I, uh, we talked a little bit before we started recording about the land that I just, uh, you know, spent time on in Washington. And uh, my spiritual teacher used to always say, the land chose me to pay its taxes. It was really his way of saying, I don't own this. There is no ownership of it. And he even, you know, really advised me to go so far as to partner with the land as opposed to steward the land. Uh, I love the word steward. And it also has a connotation of like, I'm kind of leading in certain ways. And so partnering is really like seeing the humility of how much wisdom is in the land and how much wisdom is there in relating with it. And so, uh, you know, for me, who's, you know, I tend to be on the more confident slash arrogant side, it, it, nature is the ultimate way for me to humble myself. And sometimes that is just with the words that I use as I relate to, you know, partnering with some kind of land, like the the land in Washington. And sometimes it's the humility that I experience when I'm, you know, sh on a sheer cliff in Idaho with shale rocks falling down and me feeling fearful for my life to the point where I just have to respect the, the awe of nature. So, you know, there's a lot of ways that I've experienced it and not to make this a plug, but the book that I wrote, it's like all stories, it's all parables. And so every single portion of the book is actually wisdom that I've gotten from a very specific experience in nature. Amazing. Um, well, you, you're a beautiful human. I, I just, this was been, I've been anticipating this conversation. It's made me so excited that we finally got to do it. This is one of my all time favorite recordings. So if people want to find out more, get in touch with you, obviously the book sacred hunting, but you also have your website, sacred hunting. Yep. Sacredhunting.com. .com. That is the, the simplest way to find out about the work and, and get the book and uh, it's pretty much, it's free, uh, on my website. So you can go there and get it. And then on Instagram, I post a decent amount, as you know, uh, which is just my name, M A N S A L D E N T O N. Absolutely. I hope this, uh, episode inspired some people to reach out to you and people who have been curious about hunting, maybe a little bit anxious, don't want to participate in what they perceive hunting to be in like the wrong direction as the right way as your attendees have reviewed it. Um, I think this will resonate with a lot of people. So I hope that, I hope that some folks reach out and, uh, you lead them on their journeys. 
Yeah. And I'm so open to leading people on their journeys from afar. You know, hunting is not uh, just the experiences that I curate. You know, it's it's definitely possible for people to, to make it their own, create their own where they live. And the beautiful thing about this practice is it's available to, you know, almost all of us and uh, and it can be really transformative. So, yeah, I appreciate you allowing me to to come on and get in front of some people who it might support. And that's a wrap. Now, if you've been curious about hunting or have recently felt the inner predator gray wolf archetype howling in your soul, I have two great options for you. First is you can always hunt with Monsel. So go check it out at sacredhunting.com to learn more. Or you can come hunt right here on the regenerating grounds of Rome Ranch. We also have a guided hunting program as well. Both are amazing options for first-time hunters or for seasoned hunters who want to connect with nature at a greater level. And as always, I would love to thank the life source of this podcast, which is Force of Nature. Head over to forceofnature.com and fill your cart with things like wild boar, elk, venison, bison, all these delicious wild game animals that we have spent so much time over the last two episodes covering in extensive detail. If harvesting your own meat is not on the agenda this year, that's okay. We got your back. You can order all these amazing wild gifts from the land and have them shipped to your front door. Now to honor the rhythms of nature where we have night and day, we have changes of the season, We have the perigee and apogee of the moon. Let's continue the rhythm of reading an actual factual review of this podcast. So this is going to be from our Apple podcast platform. It's a five-star review titled Eat Wild and it's from Old Smoke 3. Here it goes. It's hard for me to procure my own wild meat and I appreciate these people who understand that. I'm definitely grateful to be able to hear the stories of the people who have decided to help people, animals, and land. Good podcast. Well, thank you very much, Old Smoke 3. Your observations are very astute. We kind of have a a hierarchy of how we encourage people to source their own food. And that first tier is going to be harvesting your own wild animal by your own hands. That's like the pinnacle. But that's not a reality for most people. So secondly, we want you to go to your farmer's market, meet a farmer, shake their hand, get to know them, form a relationship, be in relationship. And if you can't do that, then that's where force of nature comes into play. So we got your back. Thank you for the review. If you want to have your review read at the end of this podcast, please leave one on the Apple platform. Heck, it doesn't even have to be a review. It can just be a statement, a fact. It can be uh, a, pro- a proposition. It can be a negotiation. It can even be a marriage proposal. And I will read it for you on the air. That would be so romantic, especially if your archetype is unromantic. Until next time, my friends. <laughs>